proclaiming truth to restore life and liberty. This is The Future of America with your host, Nena Arias. She has proclaimed truth for over 40 years in many nations of the world and now endeavors to restore the values of the biblical worldview that made the United States of America the most powerful nation in the world. Ideas have consequences. They're passed on from generation to generation, forming the culture of a society. To eradicate error, the moral and ethical principles of the Bible must be firmly established in the heart and mind of each individual. Discover how to apply biblical principles to transform your world. And now, your host, Nena Arias. Welcome, friends. It is so great to have you with us on this exciting journey that we are on, tackling the question that the serpent in the garden launched at Eve to make her doubt God's command, God's authority, and tempted her to take her life into her own hands, thinking that she could become like God. That question is, did God actually say? This is part number three, and once again, I'm so glad you have decided to join us. We have been emphasizing how God has zealously and accurately and diligently protected his word, his written word, to bring it to us. Everything rests upon that word. When he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away, he puts great emphasis on the importance of his word and its durability. So when Satan came directly and attacked God's word into the mind of Eve and Adam, he knew exactly what he was doing. And it is still his weapon of choice to cast doubt on God's word, to make people doubt God, and to detour them in their faith walk and convince them that his way is the best way. Remember, he did that with a third of the angels in heaven. We are told that he convinced a third of those heavenly beings. Wow, what persuasive power he must have. Those angels were in the presence of God. They saw and they lived in the perfection of God. They heard his wisdom and they saw it played out before them. So what did Satan tell them that could have convinced them that he had a better way? That just goes to show you that we should never underestimate the power of the enemy, even though we do not fear him. Because of Christ, we do not fear the enemy's power. And we have been looking at, through this series, how God guards his word and his authority through his word. God is the author of the Holy Scriptures. Scriptures are authoritative and conclusive, meaning they are non-negotiable. 
God is the basis for the Bible's authority, and everything rests on the purity of that word, so that people will continue to know how much he loves them, what provision he has made for their salvation, how to continue to guide their lives according to the perfect design that God made us out to be. Everything rests on his word. The record of the price that Jesus paid for our salvation has to continue throughout generations. And the only way it can do that is through his word, through the people who experience his word, and to the people who share his word. And it all has to match. It cannot be confused, cannot be diluted. It has to be in its purity to work. So since God has ensured the transmission of the message of his son, and since he reinforces this message by his own authority, mankind has only two choices, and they're very clear. We either obey him or reject him. The fact that God gave us the scripture is the reason we know that it is accurate. God never does anything half measure or haphazard. He doesn't guess at anything. He does everything precisely, accurately, and with eternal purpose. So this is why we can totally trust that God's word is accurate and that we are to experience it in an accurate way. And because God has spoken it, we can be confident in the scripture's authority. It is true and represents faithfully his offer and promise of forgiveness and eternal life to those who meet his criteria of belief in his precious son, and they are fulfilling his will. And you know what's beautiful about this? That each person can become a first-hand witness of this if they so choose. It is out there for whoever will. The word of God is not something we can live without. We can do without a lot of things, but the word of God is not one of them. And Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 4 when he faced Satan's temptation. Remember that account? And let us read verse 1 through 4 that says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. End of quote. Do you see how important the word of God is? We must know what are those words that come from the mouth of God. Jesus could have answered in many ways. And at the same time, he was not inventing anything. He was quoting that scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that says, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. End of quote. If that was enough for Jesus, 
to fight off the force of the enemy, it should be for us as well. And we must value it in the same way. Man shall not live by bread alone. At this time in Jesus' life, he has been fasting in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he became very hungry. I don't know if you have ever fasted for a prolonged time or prolonged period, but if you have, you know the process. You know that at first, by the third or fourth day, it is hard. But once you have passed that hurdle, the hunger goes away and you feel like you could fast forever. But when the hunger returns, that is the dangerous part. And that was Jesus' condition when Satan came to tempt him. I read somewhere that when the body returns to that kind of hunger, it starts to consume itself. It is not the type of hunger that you feel when you have missed a meal or two. Nowhere near that type of experience. It is dangerous to be in that condition. And this is what Jesus was experiencing when Satan came to tempt him. So you know it was a very, very severe temptation at this crucial point. It's when Satan tempted Jesus to make bread from stones to relieve his hunger. It would have been so easy, but Jesus rejected this idea. And he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He told Satan, Man shall not live by bread alone. Because the word of God has been removed from being the focal point in churches today, the spiritual discipline of fasting has also been lost and is totally misunderstood. It is taken as something that early Christians did or that Jesus did or the apostles did. It is misunderstood and people think it is optional in the life of the believer, but it is not. We clearly see it here. Physical nourishment is not sufficient for a healthy life. Man also has spiritual needs. And in the spiritual realm, denying ourselves food brings us into a different dimension, which is why some of the pagan religions even practice fasting. They don't fast unto the Lord. They fast as a discipline of their pagan religion. Scientifically, we are told that fasting has its benefits to detox the body, to unblock things that get blocked in our body, to purify it. So it is a healthy practice to fast. But also in the spiritual realm, we are called upon to fast. Fasting must be better understood for victorious living. And its spiritual value needs to be more deeply embraced for us individually and as a church. Why else would it be in the Bible if it is not beneficial? This should draw our attention 
that the Son of God began his ministry with a 40-day fast. Why would Jesus choose to do that if there's no value in it? Obviously, it has great value. We should stop and think about this. We should ask, what about me? Can I face the incredible challenges to my Christian life without the spiritual discipline of fasting? Now, it must be understood that fasting is not just torturing your body and denying it food. That's where you start, of course. But fasting is a humbling of ourselves before the presence of God. Can we as the church experience the fullness of Christ's power and blessing without humbling ourselves before our Heavenly Father and seeking the Lord in fasting, prayer, the reading of His Word? We're seeing the example of Jesus here. Does your heart not yearn more to see the people of God more victorious and impacting our culture more effectively? I know I yearn for it. The Christian churches should be more on fire with the zeal of Jesus and for the lost world. Do you weep before the Lord for the lost souls? Do you live with that burden in your heart to intercede for those who are to be of God's salvation on a daily basis around the world? As believers and disciples of Christ, this is our responsibility. After being baptized, Jesus came up out of the water, and the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Not that the Holy Spirit was a dove. It was interpreted as being in the shape of a dove. And this is something that needs to be corrected. Whenever people want to represent the Holy Spirit, they draw or they picture a dove, and that is not accurate. Now we know that the Holy Spirit had always been with Jesus because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel said, and he told Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will conceive by the Holy Spirit. But what we're seeing here is that this was a special anointing or outpouring or baptism that would rest on Jesus for his three-year public ministry to accomplish what he had to accomplish. Because you see, the Spirit of God has always been part of the triune Godhead. Since Genesis, we are told that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the earth. Now, Jesus was baptized in water to identify with us in his submission to God's rule and righteousness. This is what makes him our prime example to follow in obedience to our Heavenly Father. God never asks anything of us that his precious Son did not already go through. And when we see the life of Jesus, and if we follow it diligently, 
we will be in right standing with our Father, our Heavenly Father. Now, the Holy Spirit came on him to empower him and guide him in the tremendous demands that lie ahead for him. This was just the beginning. The temptation of Satan in the wilderness was just the beginning of the demands that were on Jesus. This experience of the Holy Spirit is also the same with us like it was for the early disciples, remember? The disciples of Christ and the experience they had in the upper room when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them, don't leave Jerusalem until you have this experience because they were going to need it. He knew what was ahead for them and the price they all had to pay. They were breaking ground for the kingdom of God. So it was not going to be easy for them. They needed desperately the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, just like you and I do. And just like Jesus experienced the fire of attack, misery, and pain. This was not because the Father was displeased with him, just like he is not displeased with us. This needed to happen. We're also tried through fire of trials to purify and approve ourselves before the Father, and we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Faith is always tested. Faith is always tried to make sure it is pure, to make sure the commitment in our heart is steadfast. And the only way that that can happen is through trials. The Spirit's first fiery trial in Jesus' ministry is that the Holy Spirit took him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was the Holy Spirit's work. said, come on, Jesus. Come on. We're going to start this new chapter. Now, we know that the wilderness is a very lonely place, inhospitable. It can be very cold at night, very hot in the day. It can be dangerous with poisonous animals, reptiles. It is not a nice place to be. There are no people around for the most part, but this is where Jesus needed to go. Jesus had to be exposed to Satan's testings all by himself, humanly speaking. That is the way it also goes with us. If we are going through deep trials, or when we are going through deep trials, we feel all alone, humanly speaking, and we think that nobody else has ever gone through what we're going through. And that is a good thing. Why do I say that? Not because it feels good, but because it causes us to run to Christ and not lean on any human arm. No human support is the best way to face trials. Yes, God can use people along the way to minister to us, but ultimately it is between us and God when we are going through deep trials. He's the only one that can see us through. So Jesus prepared to go into this combat with fasting, and so should we. We should discover the power of 
fasting, of humbling ourselves before God. Throughout the Bible, we have these examples of fasting in dire circumstances. Important circumstances. Crucial circumstances. For instance, Jesus fasted and prayed all night to pick his disciples. You would think he already knew who they were. He wanted to get it right and confirm. You can read this account in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Fasting and prayer are powerful spiritual tools. Another example of fasting was Moses. Moses fasted 40 days before receiving the commandments up on Mount Sinai. Remember? 40 days. You can read that in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 8 through 18. David mourned in fasting his child's illness in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 23. He was fasting, he was praying, he was humbling himself before God that perhaps God would spare the life of his child. And so he could not taste a bite until that was determined by God. We have the example of Elijah fasting while he was escaping Jezebel, who was after his hide. She wanted to kill him. You may read this in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4 through 8. Ezra, Ezra had a terrible burden for the sin of the people, and he fasted while he was mourning over this sin. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 16 through 17. And of course, we have the account of Esther. Esther fasted for the safety of the Jews, and she called for a fast among all the Jews. In Esther chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. King Darius fasted for the safety of Daniel in the lion's den. Remember that? In Daniel chapter 6, verse 18 through 23. And also we have that Daniel fasted for an answer to prayer and for understanding of a vision. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 through 3. We know the Apostle Paul fasted after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 9. And then the elders in Antioch fasted before sending out missionaries in Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. And we could go on and on and on. Fasting is a powerful tool, not because through it, we twist God's arm into doing what we want. Rather, we submit to his will in spirit, mind, and body. We humble ourselves before our God. Many times, even though we fast, even though we pray, God is still going to do what he needs to do. For instance, in the case of David, when he mourned for his son while he was sick, he was praying that God would heal his son and spare his life. But God saw that it was necessary to act this way because of David's sin, and the child died. So we do not fast to force God to do what we want him to do. 
we fast and pray and humble ourselves before God and ask that his will be done on whatever we are believing him for. Think about it. What would be the history of the world if Jesus had not triumphed over Satan in that first fierce trial? I tremble to think. On his obedience and righteousness hung the salvation of the world. No one could ever escape damnation without the success of Jesus' ministry of obedient suffering and death and resurrection. Everything depended and depends on that. At the very outset, his ministry was threatened with destruction. The temptations of Satan were very real to make Jesus abandon the path of lowliness and suffering and obedience. And of all the ways that Jesus might have fought him off in this tremendous threat to salvation, he is led to fast, to be empowered from on high, to pour himself out in his humanness and to fill himself with spiritual power from on high. If Satan had succeeded in deterring Jesus from the path of humble obedience and suffering, my Lord, there would be no salvation. We would still be in our sins and without hope. We would not know what to do or how to live. We would have already destroyed each other totally and completely, I am sure, because sin grows. So you see, we owe our salvation to the faithful obedience of Jesus, empowered through fasting and humbling himself to the will of the Father. This is a remarkable tribute to spiritual discipline, where fasting plays a vital part. We must not underestimate this. Jesus triumphed over his enemy by humbling himself to the maximum before God, emptying himself before God, that God would empower him and take him through his mission. In his defense, and in the face of Satan and his attacks, Jesus uses what is already recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Every time Jesus responds to the three temptations of the devil in the wilderness, he quotes from Deuteronomy. And I challenge you to go back to the whole book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 8, verse 3, he answered him in the first temptation, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that still stands today. You cannot live without the word of God. You can do without a lot of things, but not without the word of God. In the second temptation, Jesus told him, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. That is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And then when Satan wanted Jesus to worship him, Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. So you see, when Satan asked Eve, Did God actually say? His goal has always been to dilute God's word 
in the hearts and minds of his creation, of every person who calls himself a child of God. Does all this indicate to you how important it is for us not to lose the word of God from our sights? I sure hope so. We're going to continue with this topic, and I hope you will join us. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast. May these truths challenge and change your heart. We hope today's topic has truly enriched your life so we can make America strong again. This program is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners. All donations are tax deductible. We would love to hear your questions or comments. Please visit our website at www.culturallegacy.org. You may email us at cl.culturallegacy.org or write to The Future of America, P.O. Box 38456, Greensboro, North Carolina, 27438. Call us at 877-732-2887. That's 877-732-2887. Remember, you are a person of positive or negative influence. What you do today will impact the future.